Well, I think really uh, two two things are at stake here. One, on one hand, it's I guess more of a um, a, a symbolic idea. This idea that uh, you know for, for decades the East Timorese people struggled to be an independent country. So really, the establishment of permanent maritime boundaries is really one of the final steps, uh, final chapters in that in that very long history. So for a lot of Timorese, this. Um, you know, that, that would argue this is really about sovereignty and becoming uh, a sovereign nation uh, and really completing that kind of process. Uh, so that's sort of the, the key thing uh, for a lot of people working on this issue. But obviously, uh, you can't ignore the economic um, impacts of, of, of such a decision as well, because in, as, you, as you've indicated, in the ocean between uh, Australia and East Timor lies a number of really um, lucrative oil and gas fields and, and greater sunrise being, uh, I guess, the, the, the jewel in the crown there. It's, it's expected to generate probably about $20 billion in government revenue over its lifetime. So for a very small country like East Timor, that could have a real uh, profound effect uh, on its economy. And so it's important that, uh, that Timor gets a fair share of a natural resource that under international law is uh, likely to belong uh, if not all, at least uh, m- most of that field is likely to, lo- to belong to East Timor. Now, as I said in the intro, it's a very long and, long and complex history. The negotiations or lack of negotiations is really part of the story over uh, the oil and gas revenue. But uh, there was a treaty signed in 2006 that was later uh, revoked by East Timor. And there's been allegations of, of spying of uh, electronic bugging equipment being placed in East Timorese uh, cabinet rooms. Can you give us, I guess, a bit of a potted history, if you like, of, of those negotiations and how we've come to this point? Yeah, sure. I guess the, the key thing here is this new treaty, it's reported, will actually, for the very first time, establish permanent maritime boundaries between the two countries. And that's really the, the heart of the issue is that um, over the last few decades, Australia has really done you know, a, a, a number of, I guess, dodgy, had a number of dodgy techni- uh, tactics to get away with... Um, I guess, jostling East Timor into a series of temporary resource-sharing agreements. So rather than um, you know, drawing a line halfway between the two countries and say, OK, that's the permanent boundary, instead, Australia has sought to uh, use individual treaties to pick off the individual oil and gas fields. This is despite um, East Timor making it very clear that all along they wanted a permanent maritime boundary, and that's what they repeatedly uh, were, request, were asking um, Australia to do. But uh, Australia, just two months before East Timor became an independent country, Australia unilaterally withdrew its recognition of the maritime boundary jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. So this was sort of, if you like, in simple terms, it was, it was walking away from the independent umpire. So it really left East Timor in a hard position because it made clear that Australia really didn't have um, much intention of playing by the rules. And if Timor didn't like its actions, there was no sort of legal avenue that uh, Timor could really pursue to, to hold Australia to account. So instead, yeah, we, we saw these very uneven uh, negotiations take place where Australia was really able to shortchange East Timor out of billions of dollars in, in, in every uh, treaty that it signed. And as you've mentioned, that, that, um, the CMATS treaty, the one that was signed in 2006, it was later exposed, of course, that uh, Australia had even bugged the Timorese cabinet room during the negotiations to get that kind of unfair advantage. Uh, and they did so using uh, the cover of, a, of an AusAid project. So it's a, a remarkable um, part of Australian history because I think you know, most Australians would be you know, relatively comfortable with this idea that espionage and spying and stuff is used for national security reasons. 
But I think most people would be very uncomfortable with the idea that the Australian government would be using it to rip off our neighbours. Just, just not what sorry to interrupt, Tom, but tease that out a little more if you could. I mean, it is an extraordinary story, as you say. There's there's a book coming out uh, by a Canberra lawyer, Bernard uh, Collery, who's uh, represented uh, the East Timorese government uh, in in these negotiations, and he's uh, written about or spoken about uh, the these uh, spying spying allegations. And it, I, I guess the, the question is, why is it not more well known? Why do the Australian public as a whole uh, not not paid more attention to this story because it does uh, speak to you know lots of pretty nefarious practices at the heart of how of the Australian uh, state really doesn't it? I guess so, and it, it does. I think the, the fact that we haven't heard a great deal about it sort of by its, is, is explained by its very nature of when when you're talking about um, you know in, in in Bernard Caleri's example, so he was the lawyer that we, at the time was representing I think the Timorese government. Uh, and or um, uh, witness K. So this is the whistleblower who who uh, came forward with information about the fact that Australia had bugged the Team Rees cabinet room, and his offices were were raided. Zazia raided his offices, um, and the passport of witness K was seized. Uh, my understanding is that I don't think witness K has has been given his um, passport passport back. And so what this meant was that witness K couldn't actually travel over to the Hague. Uh, when one of the legal proceedings was under underway, and and give evidence about this, so I think a lot of these kind of tactics are very heavy-handed, but they are about um, suppressing a lot of that information. And I guess as a as a side point, um, it's interesting to note that currently the, the the Turnbull government is trying to introduce new secrecy laws, which would uh, increase the uh, the penalties of of um, revealing this kind of information. Uh, I think it's for journalists and whistleblowers could be facing up to up to 20 years in prison for um, sharing those kind of uh, state secrets. And just, uh, just, sorry, sorry, Tom, but just to explain to listeners as well, you mentioned the Hague. That's another extraordinary aspect of uh, this whole situation, isn't it? That uh, this is the first case, uh, as I understand, to go before the Permanent Court of Arbitration, uh, so-called compulsory conciliation uh, process that the East Timor took Australia to, to, to the Hague. Can you explain a little more about that whole process? Uh, yeah, so there's a kind of, I guess there is a complicated timeline of, of various legal actions taking place. But the, the one I think you're referring to the, the, that hasn't been used before is the, the UN's compulsory conciliation process. And so this is a process that exists uh, for when, when there's a dispute and when one country doesn't recognise the independent umpires, so in this case, Australia. Uh, and it's never been relied on before. It is a voluntary uh, mechanism, if you like. It's, it's the outcome isn't binding, but obviously, uh, when when uh, Timor took that step to take Australia into that conciliation process, um, it, it was pretty hard for Australia politically to to be seen not to be cooperating. It, it had a good crack at it. They they argued that um, they didn't. Australia went into that first hearing saying that it wasn't um, a form that it, it, it respected, it, it didn't have to uphold um, the rulings, made it very clear that it, it wasn't happy to be there and, and it wasn't going to um, necessarily uh, follow the ruling. But I think politically that became harder and harder for Australia for a number of reasons. One, it was it was itself looking for a seat on the, the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, so I think it had to, it had to felt an extra pressure to you know respect those UN processes, and also and I think really important importantly, uh, our allies uh, like the USA were being very vocal about China uh, and it not following international law when it came to the dispute in the South China Seas. So Australia was really being quite hypocritical 
in calling for um, China to respect international law and, and certain decisions that were made in the courts. Uh, and at the same time, it, it, it wasn't following the same laws when it came to East Timor. So I think its defence there began to crumble and one way or another, uh, the, this conciliation process did produce a result in that uh, we, we now have a treaty on the table and, and that's due to be signed in a couple of weeks. Just on that, that final point, uh, there are reports indicating that, that the final treaty negotiations or the terms of the, the new treaty will be announced on March 1st and there's speculation that East Timor uh, could receive up to 80% of the revenue from the Greater Sunrise uh, uh, Oil and Gas Field, which, as you mentioned, is worth up to $50 billion. Uh, so, I mean, what's your feeling as to what, 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 the, terms, uh, what the terms of the treaty will, will be and is, is it due to be announced soon, do you think? Yeah, so hopefully the details will emerge in the, in the next week or so. Um, my understanding from the media reports is that um, one really great thing about the treaty is that it will finally set permanent maritime boundaries. So that's that, that's great. And that's based on the median line. So that's halfway between the two countries. And that's what Timor's been asking for the whole time. So that's a really great outcome. I guess the unknown and the, the, the big question mark is going to come down to where the side boundaries are placed. So if you imagine they've ruled a line halfway between the two coastlines, but there's still, it's unclear where the lateral boundaries are going to go. And that will determine, as you say, exactly what kind of share um, Timor will get from the Greater Sunrise Field. Now, the media reports are suggesting that uh, that's going to depend a little bit on the development plan for Sunrise. So the, the story is if, if uh, the companies decide that actually they're going to pipe the, the gas uh, to Australia, then the boundaries will be placed in such a position that it will give East Timor a greater share of the government revenue uh, and, and vice versa. And that's important because the whatever country gets to process the gas gets the other downstream uh, economic benefits, the jobs and the taxes and that kind of stuff. So that's the big question mark. The, the median line, the halfway line, that, that's really great news, but we just don't know yet where the, I guess, the side boundaries are going to be drawn exactly.